trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or you're a fairly new to the program, I'll give you a brief explanation as to why shows such as this exist. First and foremost, there is a battle going on for your mind, and it's it's not so much a matter of, you know, you got a chance to write slogans in unison, man. I mean, that's that's how some people approach it. That is not how I approach it. I don't have all the answers, and I don't purport to be able to tell you what to think. So, yeah, there's a battle for your mind, but I'm not the one who wants to plant a flag on it and claim it as my own. What I'm trying to do is encourage anybody within the sound of my voice to listen with the intent of becoming a more clear and independent thinker about the things that are going on around us. That means you're going to disagree with me, and that's totally okay. My goal isn't to make you mad. It's to inspire you to dig a little bit deeper, to own your worldview, and then to set forward making the difference that you were born to make. You just go out there and change the world as only you can do it. I know it's a tall order, but I also know that you're up to it. So let's dive right in. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors, which you will find listed in my show notes each and every day that I do the program. They include Monticello College, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and want to welcome a new sponsor to the program, Govern Your Income. I'll be telling you more about them coming up a little bit later in the show. So I, I want to share something with you. This is kind of a personal thing, and maybe some people will shrug their shoulders and say, okay, whatever. But last year was such a banner year for me, and I don't mean in the sense that <clears throat> excuse me, everything went right and nothing went wrong, and I can't imagine why people struggled you know, through 2020. But with all the turmoil, with the pandemic, the lockdowns, the uncertainty, there were a couple of very bright spots. And one of the brightest of all was that I was able to make contact with my biological parents. I was adopted when I was four days old. And uh, this last year, I made connections with my biological parents. And, and it was it's something that had actually been on my mind for a little while. And, and had, it meant a lot to me because for a long time I'd carried with me this idea that I would like to be able to at least tell my birth mother, thank you for not taking the easy way out. I was born pre-Roe v. Wade, so, you know, it, it was an option, albeit uh, a much more frowned upon option, you know, to simply abort an unwanted pregnancy. And I wanted to tell her, look, thank you. You gave me the greatest gift of all, life. I just wanted to assure her that I didn't squander that gift. Well, I had that opportunity last year, and it was an immensely positive experience. It could not have happened, though, had I not first, excuse me, made contact with my biological father, who turned out to be the key to getting in touch with my biological mom. They never married. They went their separate ways, and, you know, it's just such an interesting thing to, to come into contact with people who look like you who you share DNA with, and, uh, you know, to, to be able to to recognize some of those those traits that come along with DNA. And there's a lot of it that comes through in behavior. For instance, I have 
and utterly irrational fear of spiders. Heaven help you if you're riding with me in the car and suddenly a spider starts to drop down from the visor in front of me. I'm going to react. Hopefully not drive off the road, but I can't guarantee it. I really, really hate spiders. Now, here's the kicker. This year, I finally was able to connect up with my biological father in person. We've been Skyping pretty much weekly for the last year and a half. And it's been wonderful getting to know him that way. It's, uh, it, this is one of the funny things. is when, when, I, when I first found out who he was, I saw his picture the, the moment I pulled up my 23andMe results. And it was like, whoa, there's no doubt. That guy looks like an older version of me, or I look like a younger version of him. There's no doubt that this guy was my dad, my biological dad. And I'm sure, like me, he did some digging, did some Googling. Well, who is this Brian Hyde character? And and I have to wonder what his reaction was. Because my biological dad and I have had very, very different life paths. He has been a very academic, a very accomplished, uh, um, you know, professor and librarian and holds a PhD in Victorian literature and has traveled the world. And he's an extremely erudite individual and also uh, sees no real need for religion and is pretty left, you know, left leaning in his politics. So can you imagine what he's thinking as he's starting to, to Google and pull up old articles I've written or, you know, seeing episodes that I've recorded of, of uh, various podcasts or radio shows or radio in- interviews I'm sure he was like, holy crap, <laughs> this, this kid went a totally different direction. So on paper, you would think, man, you guys would have nothing in common. But I want to share with you just a little excerpt. Um, last week, I had the chance to, to travel to meet him where he lives. And uh, it was just a couple of days, but it was just a really marvelous experience. And something he said, this is, uh, I, I'm just going to share this one paragraph, but There's a great lesson here. He says, I'm sure that you, like me, could see many characteristics that we share now that we've met each other. He says, in fact, I come away more and more impressed how much our DNA expresses itself in our behavior. I'm sure my folks must have observed it in me, as I'm sure you do in seeing your kids. He said, also, I don't regret telling you about your birth mother, and I'm pleased that you've connected connected to her family. I think it's only fair that someone knows as much information about both parents As possible. Most importantly, as he told his brother and his closest friends, he said, I really like you as a person. Now he says, that may be a bit of my looking in the mirror, but I think it's much more than that. He said, I love your sense of humor, your keen observations, your willingness to appreciate both in food and culture the differences of our worlds. Obviously, we have major differences in politics and religion, and probably general outlook on life as well. But beneath that, we share a commonality that can't be dismissed. And he said, thanks for coming down. As I mentioned on the way to the airport, you've made my life much richer and deeper. And I always thought that I had a very rich and satisfying life before. I cannot tell you how those words warmed my heart. But the lesson that I'm trying to share here with you, this is not, hopefully this doesn't come across as, you know, my bio dad thinks I'm cool. <clears throat> I'm very happy for for meeting him and getting to, to hang out with him. And he's a good person. But the idea that beneath those differences in politics and religion and general outlook on life, 
we share a commonality that can't be dismissed. I like him for who he is. Not what he believes, not what bumper sticker he might have on his car. By the way, I don't think he has any on his car, but do you see what I'm trying to say here? The stuff that we tend to obsess over and the things that uh, we we actively look for differences to, excuse me, to differentiate ourselves from them and those people and that person. In the long run, they really don't matter that much. And I would just encourage you, look for the commonalities that you share. And this would be even with people on your own side. I've been in the I've been in the fight to defend freedom for quite a long time. And one of the most disturbing trends that I've noticed and participated in at times is that sniping at other fellow freedom fighters because their views are not as pure as my views. It's a really destructive attitude. And I think at some level we if if we hope to make a united stand for the things that really truly matter. Now, in my case, when I say things that really truly matter, I'm talking about liberty. I'm talking about freedom of conscience. I'm talking about the respect of private property rights and the free market system. I'm talking about the freedom to to live your life unmolested so long as your behavior is peaceful and not infringing on other people. If these are the standards that we want to uphold, then at some point we've got to be willing to set aside the little differences and stand with those who likewise believe in those things. That can be hard. And that's why I try to do this program in such a way that I'm not adding more anger or more division and more fear to whatever it is that uh, you may be thinking about on a given day. Ideally, if I can just put my cards on the table for you here, I believe that right now we're in a very precarious situation, one in which we are going to find solutions primarily by looking to the divine. And it's the kind of thing, if we're going to ask God for help in in sustaining our freedoms and and preserving us, protecting us, we're going to have to learn how to speak with one voice to our Creator. So let's find the areas where we can come together. Let's find the areas that actually matter and not let those little differences be quite the cause for division that they seem to become. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for uh, being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers today. Let's begin. I had a a co-host I used to work with who would talk about her spidey sense. My spidey sense tells me, Brian, something is happening in your world. Crazy thing is, more often than not, she was right. So there may be something to that. But I'm curious, what are your spidey senses telling you? I think a lot of us right now are feeling a pretty big shift taking place in the world around us. How big? Well, we're talking tectonic. It's like continental drift kind of shift taking place. But it's more than just a political breakdown that seems to be coming. 
came across a great article by uh, Clarice Feldman. This was published on uh, AmericanThinker.com. I noticed Lou Rockwell also had picked this up today. This is titled, Something Big is Coming. And Claire Feldman, Clarice Feldman says, look, Dilbert creator Scott Adams tweeted this week, the country's energy is strange. Everything is amped up in every direction. Something big is coming. I bet you're feeling it too. She says he's rarely wrong about such things. Adams says he doesn't know what that something big is. But Clarice Feldman says, I'm hoping it's a major shift in America's political tectonic plates. She says, I may be looking too hard for it, but I feel it in my bones. Now, for one thing, she says the wacky spending in uh, the infrastructure bill that the Democrats have been proposing and fiddling with seems to have hit the shoals trapped between the far left and then also a couple of modern senators like Kirsten Sinema Sinema and uh, Joe Manchin. Even leftward Politico can't spackle over the dilemma. And she says it's a dilemma that the that is the only thing preventing Democrats from turning our constitutional republic into a totalitarian socialist economic mess in which only the most authoritarian and corrupt rule over a greatly impoverished citizenry. This is what Politico says. For the second time in less than a month, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her leadership team had to delay a vote on Senate passed on a Senate passed infrastructure bill amid progressive opposition. Denying President Joe Biden a much-needed win as Democrats' bigger $1.75 trillion social spending plan also remains in limbo. I think it's wholly apparent that today was not a success, said Virginia Rep. Abigail Spanberger, whose state has a high-stakes gubernatorial showdown Tuesday the Democrats were hoping to boost with the infrastructure vote. Because people choose to be obstructionists... We're not delivering these things to my state or the rest of the count of the country, the swing district Democrat added. I guess we'll just wait, because apparently failing roads and bridges could just wait in the minds of some people. Harumph. <laughs> Democrats slunk out of the House chamber embarrassed, furious at the liberals who dug in, and a White House that refused to pressure them to relent, and openly fretting about the long-term repercussions given the tough climb they face in the midterms. Okay, so there's there's one source of tension, at least politically speaking. Then you have the Virginia gubernatorial race. Terry McAuliffe, who is supposed to be a shoe-in for a second term as governor of Virginia, seems to be in a lot of trouble. Good polls that can only measure ra- a general sentiment, in my view, says Clarice. But she says, all that I've seen shows that that sentiment has rapidly shifted in favor of his opponent, Glenn Youngkin. She says, to my mind, McAuliffe's fatal miscalculation was to stand with the teachers' unions, the obstructive, dictatorial Loudoun County School Board against parents. Northern Virginia is heavily populated by tech and professional federal employees who in recent years have tended to vote Democrat. But these are people who can be expected to be concerned with the public school education of their children. And McAuliffe, reflexively tone-deaf to such concerns, placed himself perilously on the third rail. How bad is this campaign going? Well, Clarice Feldman says it could hardly be worse. So few people have turned out in places like Arlington, Virginia, that he skipped showing up at those final rallies. Rallies designed to snowball voter support. At one of those rallies, Pharrell Williams, noted hip-hop singer and music producer, told the crowd, it's okay if they vote for Glenn Youngkin. Not something I think the rally organizers wanted to hear. Then you have the odious and discredited Lincoln Project trying to help McAuliffe by staging a pretend white nationalist display for Yunkin. 
I suppose because they were torn between trying to pay honor to diversity while smearing Yunkin. They included a young black man in the mix of demonstrators, immediately undercutting the message of the scam that this was a white nationalist demonstration. In fact, one of the white nationalists was the financial director for the Young Virginia Democrats. And about the same time this ploy flopped, others reminded voters that McAuliffe had defended the present Democrat governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam's appearance in blackface costume. And it turned out that McAuliffe's spokesperson, who'd also worked for the Harris and Biden campaigns, had posted racist tweets in 2012. So just as hashtag me too backfired this week against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, now charged with a misdemeanor sexual offense against a staffer. The cancel culture mining of ancient racist comments now is backfiring against Democrats who had made something of a cottage industry out of it. Days later, McAuliffe was charged with accepting an illegal laundered $350,000 contribution from a Sri Lankan businessman. Now, she says, if, I, if, as I hope, McAuliffe loses, it will mean a gut check for those Democrats heading into a 2022 re-election fight. Because it tells them that people are sick of this craziness and that their own careers are in danger. She says, I expect since their personal political careers are the first of their interests, self-seeking congressional Democrats will cut their strings to the loonies in the squad and the Sandernistas. Next, she talks about changing the climate. This is one of the big ones, too. Ostensibly to chat with the Pope about such theological issues as climate change, apparently the latest religious belief superseding what most people consider Catholicism, President Biden who reportedly took 800 staffers with him to the climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland, cruised through Rome in an 85-vehicle motorcade. Now, what more could you ask to show how seriously Biden takes the issue of greenhouse gases and fossil fuels? Right? Speaking of serious, Clarice Feldman says, how can you not laugh at a president so stupid that when he says that he says when you buy an electric vehicle you can go across america on a single tank of gas figuratively speaking it's not gas you plug it in well sure you do and you have to plug it in every few hundred miles and wait for hours for it to charge unless someone somewhere has invented some very long and sturdy extension cords and of course plugging it in requires electrical power from somewhere And there's a substantial shortage of it now because of the same loony energy policies that are now forcing up gas and electric power prices around the country and around the world. She also touches on immigration follies and how thousands of aliens are heading uh, toward the border to join the more than one million who already illegally crossed just under this administration and almost entirely unvetted have been transported around the country. Citizens, many of whom jumped through years-long hoops to satisfy what is still immigration law, are totally ignored by this administration. And they're incredulous at the latest report. So here's the bottom line. Claire Feldman says, No matter how hard the mainstream press tries to bury such things, ordinary voters cannot miss the fact that the administration's idiotic policies and tinkering have already supplied, resulted rather in supply shortages, higher prices, higher energy costs, and terrible schools that are miseducating their children and undermining parental authority. And just as bad, this would all lead to higher taxes, even higher taxes. So people are just waking up, and she says, that means to me the ground is shifting under the Democrats' feet. That is something big. 
And here's where I want to move it out of the political realm and back into the, the practical realm of the real world, because most political drama is just that. It's, it's melodrama. What this means is that people in power are beginning to discover that all of their, their chants, all of their, their talismans that they're waving at us aren't working. People are beginning to reject their message. That means they're beginning to disrespect their power or at least, see, what's the saying? I'm not challenging your authority. I'm denying its existence. That's what's happening. And it terrifies them. Because in order for them to have power over us, we have to believe they have power. And if we stop believing, guess what? They're just standing there making frustrated noises. Actually, that makes me smile. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to become part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Hey, and if you find something that scratches the itch for you, if you're like, all right, I learned something today, or this this reinforced my belief in what is good and right and proper. Do me a favor and let a friend know. Just let them know. There's there there are other voices out here that uh, that you can can listen to, and this is one of them that uh, may shed some light on the way things are, as well as what you and I can do to better exercise our influence in the world. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com. Man, I am so appreciative of uh, Kendall Whiting and, and this wonderful company. If you have uh, started a food storage program, first of all, you're probably feeling pretty good about it because the uncertainty around us, it's there. And, and it's, it's definitely increasing as, as we move towards whatever is coming. If you haven't started a food storage program, this would be a really good time to do that. And it's consistency that makes the difference, okay? A lot of people are intimidated. Well, I don't want to run out there and, you know, spend a huge amount of money on a huge amount of food that I don't even know how to use or cook or I don't have a place to store. Try building it a little bit at a time. And if you do this through life-saving food, I'm only telling you this because with the coupon code HIDE at checkout, you will get a 20% discount. There's a link in the show notes. Please click on it. Check it out for yourself. And I'll thank you in advance for doing business with life-saving food. Maybe tell a friend about that as well. All right. From the very beginning of the pandemic, the mask issue has been used as a tool to control people. Now, some people picked up on this pretty quickly. I want to think I was one of them. And and I'm not saying because I'm so perceptive that I, I see things that you other mere mortals can't. But it was really a matter of my conscience saying something like, this isn't right. And the way that people are going about masking and the anger that people are feeling about the unmasked, it just, it struck something in my conscience that made me believe that this is a lot less about we're we're just doing our part to protect other people and more about this is a dehumanizing tool that is supposed to signify, look, I am compliant. And at least that's that's how I, I tended to perceive it. Came across a great article from the Brownstone Institute. I would strongly recommend if you are following COVID-related news stories and pandemic and lockdown-related news stories, this is a really great source of information. They have uh, have brought uh, Dr. Martin Koldorf, 
who was one of the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration on board as their <clears throat> medical direction at the Brownstone Institute. It's simply brownstone.org. You can sign up for their emails. I've got an article here from Robert Freudenthal, The True Meaning of Masking. Now, this guy is a psychiatrist, I believe, in uh, the U.K. Let me double check. Yes, he's a psychiatrist in London's NHS Mental Health Services. But hear what he has to say about the masks. He starts with the message that U.K. public health authorities and local government have been promoting. This is one you may be familiar with. My mask protects you. Your mask protects me. Now, he says the mask mandate in indoor spaces was removed in England on Monday, July 19th, 2021, but was continued in Wales and Scotland. Many continue to campaign for a return of the mask mandate in England with a belief that this is the missing tool in England's public health strategy that would lead to a lower prevalence of COVID-19, whilst ignoring that Scotland and Wales have had higher cases despite continuing to mandate the use of masks. Now, he says the weakness in the evidence for the efficacy of mask wearing in community settings is well described. And there simply isn't sufficient evidence that mask wearing, particularly cloth masks, is significantly effective in preventing viral transmission in community settings to support that certainty stated by the slogan, my mask protects you, your mask protects me. He says proponents of this slogan, despite giving significant meaning to the wearing of masks that bears little relationship to the underlying scientific evidence, have been seemingly unable to consider other ways that masking may be experienced, beyond considering those that choose not to wear masks as being selfish. Yet, of course, a cultural shift as dramatic as expecting all adults, and in some cases children, to cover their faces, is likely to cause a whole variety of responses which may be helpful to reflect on in an attempt to make sense of such a change. So he talks about masking as a relational tool. He says masking can act as a tool through which a particular relational dynamic is enacted. The coercive nature of mask mandates means that masks are experienced as being one in one part of a coercive relationship. And here's how he describes the relationship. Moralizer versus those in need of moral correction or... Enforcer versus enforced. Wearing a mask represents an entry into a relationship of this type, and a refusal to wear a mask is therefore one way of exiting this dyad. Now, this sense of enforcement or being moralized, he says, is compounded when our relationship with authority and the government is transactional and enacted along lines of existing power inequalities. If we are all citizens existing in society together, each with unique and various perspectives, which deserve to be heard and thought through, and the government is just one partner within that society, then perhaps some members will assess the evidence and their personal risk and the risk in their homes and workplaces and make the decision to wear a face mask. But he says others will come to a different conclusion, perhaps on the grounds that the evidence for their efficacy is weak. And so that wearing a mask will not significantly change one's exposure to what already may be a very low risk. And then they will decide not to wear a mask. Now, however, he says, if we are people in a society with an authoritarian structure, where our ability to participate and do the things we wish to do every day are conditional upon the approval of the government, then our way of relating with power structures is no longer one of we are all in partnership together but one of behavioral 
correction. And in such a system, the mask becomes the tool for enacting that behavioral correction. In the enforcer versus enforced or moralizer versus needing of moral correction, the enforcer slash moralizer role can be enticing. After all, exerting power from a position of moral judgment has been an attractive position for government and those in positions of leadership in institutions since time immemorial. However, for those on the other side of these relationships, in other words, those experiencing enforcement or being moralized, it is an oppressive and suffocating relationship. And in these circumstances, removing a mask is a sign is not a sign of not caring. Rather, it becomes a safety valve and one small step towards exiting a controlling and oppressive relationship. That is beautifully described. And again, these are the words of Robert Freudenthal, who is a psychiatrist. He then talks about masking as an attack on our communal life. Saying compulsory masking represents an individualistic belief that illness and ill health could be removed if only we all behaved in certain ways. And it ignores the much more significant structural drivers of illness, such as economic equality and poverty. It suggests that at its core, interpersonal relationships are the true drivers of illness, and therefore our interconnectedness and relational lives, rather than being the very essence of our humanity, are instead a risk that should be managed and ideally avoided. So masking gives off the message, I am an infection risk. You are an infection risk. We are to be avoided. Don't get close. I'm better off away from you. Stay away. Now that's a profoundly isolating and individualistic message that we as humans should consider ourselves first and foremost to be infection risks and are better off in isolation than in connection. Dr. Freudenthal says not only is such messaging not compatible with the ideas and ways of relating to one another, which are necessary to have a communal life, but it's also based on the mistaken fantasy that it's possible to be isolated and distanced. Of course, it is not. So instead of being in relationship with and independent on the whole variety of ways in which people, groups, services uh, provide for one another, the isolated and distanced individuals instead become dependent on the government, alongside a small number of tech companies in order to meet our basic needs. Now, Dr. Freudenthal says that's an authoritarian organization of society, such that our primary relationship is with government and large corporations rather than with each other. In all of our diversity, and therefore, he says, masking can represent an attack and a hollowing out of our communities and our communal life. Now, there are a couple other aspects, and we're going to touch on these just the other side of the break. But I, I'm sharing this with you. For, maybe it's just for the, for the sake of those who early on felt like, I can't put this mask on. And it's not because I have this hyper-anxiety of something over my face. It's not claustrophobia. But it just didn't feel right. From a conscience standpoint, it just didn't feel like this is the right thing to do. I know I felt it early on, and, you know, explaining it to people at the store, hey, where's your mask? That was the least of my concerns. How about try explaining it to your spouse? Try explaining it to the people in your church congregation who are looking at you like, what the heck is your problem? You probably know, because I'm suspecting you've probably been there yourself. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And if you're one of the many people who is relocating to the great state of Utah, I mean anywhere in the great state of Utah, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is who you should contact for a quick and simple, mostly painless, <laughs> I, I don't think there's any totally painless way to uh, to get yourself a mortgage, but I'm telling you, she has the experience to make it happen and make it happen quickly. And, of course, in a hot real estate market where everybody is snapping up available inventory as quick as it comes on the market, time is of the essence. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, her office is at 619 South Bluff Street. So I'm sharing this article here from Dr. Robert Freudenthal, a very solid explanation of the true meaning of masking. And he says, trauma-informed healthcare takes the view that an individual's personal experiences should be taken into consideration in their interaction with healthcare services. For example, an individual who experienced multiple disrupted attachment relationships in early life may struggle if the same pattern of relationships are repeated when they're accessing healthcare services. So a trauma-informed approach would therefore strive to ensure that there's continuity of care in order to reduce the risk of disrupted relationships with healthcare workers, reactivating the trauma that may have occurred as a result of disrupted relationships in early childhood. But he says the masking policy, particularly with regards to mandatory masking, is anything but trauma-informed instructing people they need to cover their faces in a certain way, and if they do not do this, then they are behaving irresponsibly and inviting danger and therefore bear the responsibility if there are negative consequences if they don't wear masks. He says that's analogous to the experience that some people have, especially particularly women, of being instructed to cover up with the message of if you don't wear certain clothes, you are immoral and inviting tragedy. A trauma-informed approach would recognize that the coercive and controlling way that people are being ordered to cover their face could cause distress for people who've had negative experiences of being ordered to dress in a certain way and therefore not wearing a mask is an assertion of of not being willing to submit oneself to re-traumatizing experiences which involve covering our faces and therefore are means of emotional expression. He talks about masking as an accessibility issue, saying like so many of the other interventions that have been put in place in response to the pandemic, masking exacerbates difficulties along existing inequalities. So for those who don't have any communication or sensory difficulties, masking may not pose any particular difficulty in verbal communication. However, for those who do have sensory difficulties, for example, hearing impairment, or who have social communication difficulties, such as autism, or who have cognitive impairments, then any reduction in sensory input makes communication more challenging. Similarly, for people who may experience paranoid psychosis, a world where everyone wears masks can serve to compound that feeling of paranoia and being frightened. Therefore, the medical exemptions for an individual masking are not sufficient to increase accessibility for people with cognitive or sensory difficulties. And some may choose not to wear a mask to make the societal environment more welcoming to those with additional needs. 
Now, Dr. Freudenthal also talks about masking as a representation of medical power. This one really spoke to me for some reason. He said the pandemic has seen an extension of the medical reach within society such that every detail of our interpersonal relational lives has come under the framework of medical decision-making and have been considered primarily in terms of medical risk. There's now a complex system of biosurveillance, passports, testing, and various mandates in place that govern all of our lives. And he says if all human beings, uh, if all humans being considered as an infection risk becomes the organizing principle for society, then this represents a hyper-expansion of the reach of the medical system, which can then be used as a tool of surveillance and control. Now, just as an aside, I think this is one of the, the gravest concerns that I have felt personally about uh, this, this pandemic and about the, the shift in what's happening within the world of medicine. I, I listened to an exchange. This was on Twitter. It was a recorded phone call between a woman, and I believe she's a nurse, and the doctor at the hospital where her mother was in the COVID ward. And it was so interesting because she's pleading with this doctor. I have a prescription here filled and, and prescribed by a legit physician for ivermectin. And I'm just begging you, we want to give this to my mother. The, the doctor's just adamant. Nope, nope, nobody can visit. We have these protocols and there are no visitors to the COVID ward. And, you know, he's very strict about that. But when he hears that there's ivermectin available for this woman, and this, this, her daughter is asking, can I please just give this to somebody at the hospital who can then administer it to her? And the doctor's like, no. And he says, in fact, I'd really like to know the name of the doctor who prescribed that because I'd like to report him to the board. Holy cow, the medical board. And he just keeps saying over and over, well, this is, you know, this is our policy. We don't have people come in and visit. We don't prescribe ivermectin. This woman who's pleading for her mother's life says, but... Look, what's, what is the worst that can happen if you give her this ivermectin? And he says, the doctor says, well, it's an unproven. It's an unproven therapy, and, and it could cause things to be even worse. It could even kill her. And the woman's daughter says, well, you just told me that she's already dying. How is this going to make it worse? What do we have to lose? He would not listen. That's the kind of medical authoritarianism that uh, I, it, it was a perfect example of the medical authoritarianism that I've been seeing creeping in. And I'm sorry if that sounds like you're, you're condemning all these people who work in the hospital setting and all these uh, medical professionals. I'm not trying to throw the blanket approach out there and say, yeah, they're all bad. But I'm saying the system has been turned and taken in a direction that seems really unhealthy. Unhealthy to the point that, and I'm not. I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels this way. If I were feeling sick, and I'm not talking COVID sick. I mean, if if I were having chest pains, I would still have to really stop and think: Do I want to go to the hospital? Because I know once I go through those doors, our protocols are what reign supreme here, and you must adhere to all of them. And everybody else in the world is shut out because the protocols and the rules on this clipboard are what's supreme. I don't know. To me, that seems like a violation of the Hippocratic Oath, but, you know, I'm just one guy and not a, not a very smart one at that. So maybe I'm wrong. Going back to Dr. Freudenthal, he says wearing a mask under these kind of conditions signals to others, I consent to this system. I consider myself to be an infection risk to others and wish to be governed as such. Beautifully stated. That's why my mask would not fit over my conscience. And significantly, he says, it also says, I invest in the medical system as the authority 
to make and impose decisions on society independent of democratic and legal safeguards. Now, in this context, Dr. Freudenthal says, choosing not to wear a mask can be a simple act of rejection of medical power, of affirming the reality that our lives are complex, that our relationships diverse, and therefore do not consent to diminishing ourselves to a risk that needs to be managed, but rather assert our humanity and dignity, and most importantly, our respect for our fellow citizens. Not wearing a mask, therefore, can make his statement of, I respect that we all have unique relationships to health and to authority with our own individual perspectives. I'm curious to hear what you think. And I do not view you as a risk to be managed, but as an equal citizen with whom I am privileged to share the world. Now, our response to the pandemic, he says, will be as varied as the number of human beings living through it. And we will all attach our own meaning to the various experiences and symbols that have arisen during the pandemic era. Certainly the gap that exists between the government-approved slogans of your mask protects me, my mask protects you, and the actual strength of evidence of the efficacy of mask wearing in reducing viral transmission has given ample room for those attracted by a moralizing position to apply all manner of additional meaning to the wearing of a mask. However, Robert Freudenthal says... The invocation of the legal system and other coercive functions of the state to enforce one set of meanings, one understanding of health behaviors onto others, needs to be resisted. We all must live in this world and our society together, and therefore need to listen and be open to different perspectives. However, he says it's only possible to do that once the threat of mask mandates and other tools of coercion are removed. Dang. I've got a link to this in the show notes. I hope you will check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I publish these notes each day that I do the show, and in there you will also find a special session, a section rather, linking to my sponsors. Please take a look and see if there's something you need that they could provide you. It's very simple. You can click on the link. It'll go right to their website, or in the case of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, it'll take you right to her email. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Stay strong. Know who you are. Know what you stand for. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, the purpose of this program is not to tell you what to think. It's to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. Truth isn't something that's handed to you by authority. It's something we have to go after ourselves. This is why it's essential that we don't allow our thinking to become hyper-focused on just who and what we're against. Instead, we should be more certain about who we are individually and what we stand for. So I invite you to come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers and to claim your heritage as a free individual so that you can make the difference you were born to make. 
Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and I want to welcome a new sponsor, and that is GovernYourIncome.com. There's a link provided. I would encourage you, click on that link. I'll have a few more things to say about it a little bit later on in this hour. But if you are looking for a way to be truly independent, in other words, not at the whim of this corporation or that corporation and this dictate and this mandate, to be able to do your work from anywhere that you have Internet access, this is something you may want to take a look at. So let's dive right in. The efforts to silence dissent seem to be ramping up, and they've been going on for a while, right? I mean, there's since the election last year, it seems like there has been a very concerted effort to make sure that nobody may question whether this was the proper election or Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States and so forth. I mean, it's, it, there are so many different areas. You can't speak out against the various mandates. You can't speak out against vaccines. You can't speak in favor of, you know, other therapies like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or anything else. And to me, this is this is actually, it's a good sign, even if it is frustrating, because the authoritarians are, are flexing hard at every turn. And this means that they're afraid. I think they're really scared. We've seen this spill over from just, you know, from the the COVID pandemic to, um, well, most recently, school board meetings, right? Parents show up and they're like, I don't want my kids being indoctrinated with gay porn, or I don't want them to be indoctrinated with intersectionality and critical race theory and all of the, the other hard left Marxist ideologies that seem to have found their way into the school system. And by merely speaking out, you have people, you know, the school board level and some at the federal level that are that are okay with labeling parents as potential domestic terrorists. I think the one that's really got my attention here lately is um, the outrage, the the pearl clutching outrage of, oh, how are these people? How are they able to live with themselves? Uh, I guess a pilot on Southwest Airlines was doing the the uh, pre-flight announcement. Uh, here's, you know, what's going on, folks. There's going to be such and such and blah, 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 blah. And he finished his thing with, let's go, Brandon. And for some people, I know some people are laughing right now. Oh, boy. He, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. But there was an AP reporter apparently on that flight. And now there is this concerted effort to find out who this pilot is, to find out why he said, let's go, Brandon, and to get him fired. And I just I point this out because isn't it curious that that's that is the response of authoritarians, totalitarians. We got to cancel somebody who says something I don't like or believes something I don't like. It's not enough to say that was dumb or that's childish or that's that's crass. They got to punish anybody who doesn't see things the way that I do. I've got to make sure that they feel the wrath. What a small soul it must take to have that kind of a mindset. Someone offended me, and I have to crush them now. <laughs> By the way, as for I, I'm, I'm sure you probably understand what's behind. Let's go, Brandon. For those who are not so sure, and and frankly, for those who aren't so sure, I applaud you for being disconnected enough from the mainstream media that. You know, this this hasn't really entered, you know, your your radar screen yet. There are chants that have been developing at sporting events, thousands of people 
chanting in unison, F Joe Biden. Only they're not saying F, they're actually dropping the real F-bomb. Now, I don't think that's a very becoming way to get your message out, but I'm not exactly a big supporter of Joe Biden either. Um, I Let me put it this way. I, I don't hate the guy because first I would have to care enough about who he is or what he stands for to give him, you know, room in my mind. He doesn't get to live rent-free in my mind. But I understand the frustration that's being expressed. And so when people are chanting, F Joe Biden, you know, it's... It's it's juvenile, and it is crass, but I think it's also a nice outlet for those who otherwise, you know, well, I'm not saying they would be out there rioting and burning things down in mostly peaceful protests, but it's definitely a pressure relief valve. And, of course, there was one NBC reporter who, at a NASCAR event where people started chanting the F. Joe Biden chant, tried to misdirect that into, oh, listen, they're saying, let's go, Brandon. And, and so now that's become a mocking way for people who normally wouldn't use profanity or wouldn't be so crass as to raise their middle finger to say something that can clearly be understood as, screw you, government, and screw you, Mr. President, and anybody else and the horse you rode in on, you know, for, for the harm that you are inflicting on this country. I mean, come on, nobody had any problem with the press or Hollywood or people on the left saying this about Trump. I mean, at at the Oscars, at the Tonys, I mean, these big televised event, give me award, you know, give me an award events. People like Robert De Niro getting up, F Trump. And I mean, and people cheered. Yeah, yeah, fight the power. But now all somebody has to say is, let's go, Brandon. And and people are incensed. They lose their minds. And it's not because, well, it's offensive to sit there and use that kind of language towards our president, you know. Come on. The people who are having to come apart right now had no such problem when uh, Kathy, what's her name? See, she's already forgotten in my mind. The one who held up the severed Trump head as part of her edgy humor. <laughs> Isn't this funny? Tee-hee-hee. These are the folks who are losing their minds over chance of let's go, Brandon. So, well, I look, I'm, I'm not going to try to tell you that, uh, you know, I think profanity is really a bad thing. I do think that it's a nasty habit. And I say that because I tend to swear when I'm under pressure and I'm not happy, about. It. I'm ashamed of it. it it's it, it concerns me. It's disturbing how easy a habit it is to develop. But I think in the name of, of decency, it's good not to be throwing that kind of language around just generally. It's out of respect for other people. So for people to have a way to deliver the message that, hey, screw Joe Biden and screw the, the, the administration with which he's working without actually having to say the profanity. Yeah, I'm less concerned about that. I, I don't think that's nearly as offensive. In fact, the funnier it gets the more I find myself going, hey, that's pretty good. That's pretty clever. People who are going up, you know, at the airport and saying, yes, I uh, I need to page my brother. His uh, first name is Lesko, uh, last name Brandon. <laughs> Paging Lesko Brandon. Lesko Brandon, please pick up the white courtesy phone. It's getting creative. But to me, the cool part is it's a form of mockery. And if there is one thing that the oh, so important people cannot handle it's being mocked. This is why satire 
has always been a very effective way of critiquing attitudes and sometimes people in society who hold very strong attitudes that um, are, are out of step with others. Rather than just sitting there, you know, spittle-flinging and rapidly denouncing them, this is kind of a nice way for people to, to say, yeah, I don't agree and I don't support it. And in fact, you know, if I were less cultured, I'd be, you know, saying a bad word. But I'm, I'm grateful that they have that outlet. So I guess my message here is don't, don't shy away from, from standing up for things. Don't be profane if you can, if you can say it a better way. But when we come back from the break here in a few minutes, we're going to talk about the concept of parents as domestic terrorists. I've got a great article here from Laura Williams. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research. Parents as domestic terrorists, why no one should be surprised. And it's a little bit chilling when you start to realize that authoritarianism has been trying to thread its way through our society for quite some time. It's been a very gradual process up until about the last couple of years. And then it is just running at full speed. The good news is you and I don't have to go along with it. And the better we understand the dynamic of what's taking place right under our noses, the less likely we are to be intimidated, coerced, or fooled into embracing it as well. You know, I guess we have to do this. So please stay with us. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Let's dive into this article from Laura Williams, published on the American Institute for Economic Research website. This is another one of the resources that I like to turn to on a daily basis to get a better view of the world around me. And here's the cool thing. You don't have to wait for me to find an article and share it on this program. You can actually sign up for their daily emails and then pick and choose for yourself. What, uh, what do you want to learn more about? In this case, the article is titled, Parents as Domestic Terrorists, Why No One Should Be Surprised. Laura Williams writes, This week, the Pennsylvania School Boards Association voted unanimously to withdraw from the National School Board Association after the latter sent a letter to President Biden comparing angry parents' speeches at school board meetings to domestic terrorism and hate crimes. Now, the request for federal law enforcement to step in and silence parents and other critics may be remarkable in its brazenness, even if threats of violence were made, but that's a matter for local police, not the feds. But it's the natural extension of other federal inventions, interventions rather, in local schools. And the Pennsylvania School Boards Association, like many other organizations and millions of parents, is finally pushing back against this top-down control of education. So Laura Williams says, We might quibble about what constituted the proverbial last straw for these disaffiliations, but COVID-related reactions do seem to have galvanized a movement to decentralize control of education. Perhaps more parents saw the absurdities of schooling when it took place in their own living rooms rather than behind closed doors. Others saw teachers' unions politicizing reopenings with little consideration for what was best for the learners. 
Extended closures, masking mandates, virtual learning, as well as conflicts over curricula have crystallized a new willingness to resist the elites who claim total authority over how and what children are taught. Now, she says the very existence of a national education standard suggests that what should kids learn is a question with a single answer, which can then be replicated to a scale of 50 million students. Centralizing that question in Washington, D.C. has empowered an enormous network of special interests and an educational power structure. I mean, we're talking 4,400 Federal Department of Employees, Department of Education employees, 3 million teachers, half a million administrators, support staff, unions, textbook publishers, testing companies who've committed to one answer and want to perpetuate the status quo even when it isn't working for a majority of students. Laura Williams says, educating America or perpetuating power. She says, to understand the goals of the educational power structure, we should recall what Vaclav Havel said about uh, ideology. Now, the ideology of an institution, the ideology rather that an institution teaches, is nothing more or less than the interpretation of reality by the power structure, beautifully stated. I've always heard it expressed, too, that, uh, you know, the people who write the checks for the textbooks are the ones who are going to look best in those textbooks. Another way of saying it. Now, Hobble knew a thing or two about asserting power over a population. The playwright dissident turned president wrote his way out of communist hell and was instrumental in avoiding a bloody civil war by first allowing the Czech people to topple communist rule and second, by establishing Slovak independence. He continues, Power legitimates itself ideologically. Under totalitarianism, there is nothing to prevent ideology from becoming more and more removed from reality, gradually turning into what it has already become in the post-totalitarian system. A world of appearances, a mere ritual, a formalized language deprived of semantic contact with reality and transformed into a system of ritual signs that replace reality with pseudo-reality. End quote. Laura Williams says the educational power structure, insulated from feedback from parents or employers, deprived of contact with reality, has a core goal, to justify its own existence. Teachers unions, administrators, local school boards, and state boards of education All exist to serve themselves and other adults, not children or parents. Their job is to manage budgets and pensions and professional development, not to educate kids. That's harsh, but I think it's true. Where systematic failure or where systemic failures are acknowledged, they're just used as evidence that the failing system needs more money, more power, and more authority. In other words, the power legitimizes itself. And that is what compulsory institutional school has become and what many are beginning to rebel against, a totalitarian system of ritual signs that replace reality with pseudo-reality. Laura Williams says a majority of high school seniors are not proficient in reading by the state's own standards, which is a questionable standard anyway. Most graduate with little education or preparation for life. Still, they march to pomp and circumstance bearing cap, gown, and diploma, the ritual signs of pseudo-reality. From here, she talks about a national curriculum, saying the very idea of a national standard curriculum should trouble us, even without national law enforcement crushing dissenters. Who will decide the one universal way to regard ourselves? 
Schools may pay lip service to diversity, but their whole structure proclaims there is one correct representation of reality, and millions of people must submit their children to that ideology. She says schools try to teach far too much, all disjointed and devoid of context, and teach that content in ways we know don't work for most brains. Instead of giving children access to the libraries and gymnasiums and supportive staff, we give them inflexible expectations and a strict pace. Sight words in kindergarten, multiplication tables in third grade, long division in fifth. And children who don't fit that script or who react to institutional school settings rebelliously, as most adults would if forced to endure them, are pathologized and medicated or branded as failures. Now, of course, she says, school board meetings have become flashpoints with threats and curses hurled at administrators. School boards have chosen for themselves the role of deciding what representation of reality will be taught to other people's children. And parents, often for lack of alternatives, send kids off on a bus or into a school door and turn over responsibility for their education to government programming, which they, they want some... <clears throat> which they want, some say, in shaping. Students spend 20,000 hours absorbing and being measured against a construction of reality that was chosen for them according to someone else's values. That is the compulsory curriculum. Show up, sit still, wait to be told what to do, and then do what we tell you. Gold stars and punishment will be administered accordingly. That's what compulsory, institutional, government-run schools teach. They exist not to teach students, but to teach an ideology, the single interpretation of reality and humanity and success promoted by the powerful. John Taylor Gatto, that's a name that everybody should know, taught public school for 30 years, both winning New York City and State Teacher of the Year, then quit because he no longer wished to make a living harming children. In his acceptance speech for his final teaching award, Gatto resigned from teaching, listing the seven lessons he said schools actually want him to teach. Confusion, class position, indifference, emotional dependency, intellectual dependency, provisional self-esteem, and surveillance. Laura Williams says we retain very little of what we supposedly learn in school. We forget chemical nomenclature unless we use it often, and if we do, we certainly would have learned it without being forced in school. We forget the dates of wars and the quadratic equation and state capitals. So she says what we don't need, or what we don't forget, rather, is the true national curriculum. How to walk into a room and look around for who is in charge and wait to be told what to do. That sounds about right. How to envy and compete with peers instead of cooperating or helping each other. How to sit quietly devoted to a single tedious task until a bell rings and we move to the next forced tedious task. Compliance, conformity, hierarchy, helplessness. This is what schools were designed to teach, the antithesis of truly empowering education. There's more to this article, but I'm going to let you discover it for yourself. This is from Laura Williams, published by the American Institute for Economic Research. You can find it in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Hey, I want to give one final thought here from the uh, Laura Williams article that I was sharing in the last segment. Just so you know that, uh, you know, yeah, the problem is, is that uh, there is a national ideology being taught. Students are being taught what to think by people who want to be able to control what they think. But here's a point that's worth considering, especially if that's something that rubs you the right way. Laura Williams says, dissidents don't have to distribute pamphlets or carry rifles. If you want to stand up and participate in dissident solutions, parallel structures of living, learning, working and caring for one another is a challenge to the system. So all over the country right now, American parents and students are opting out of government schooling. These are the dissidents who will expose the lives of totalitarian education simply by continuing to exist. I can't think of a higher compliment than to be a threat to the people in power simply by virtue of the fact that you exist. That you haven't bent the knee. I don't know why, but that just that makes me happy. Because I, th- I think probably because it can be, yeah, it can be done peacefully. Very, very worthwhile. So I, I wanted to touch on something that I know more people are becoming aware of, uh, sadly, because they're seeing empty shelves here and there, and they're understanding there are breakdowns in the supply chains. Anybody in manufacturing, anyone who works in manufacturing, at least that I've talked with in the last month and a half, has told me about, oh, yeah, we're having a heck of a time getting replacement parts, getting new things, you know, because of the supply chain mess. And hearing some of the uh, explanations for why this is happening, well, it's equal parts entertaining as well as infuriating because there's a lot of spin going on that, oh, this is no big deal. I did find a really well-thought-out article here from Ryan McMacken from the Mises Institute, which says the Fed's inflation is behind the supply chain mess. I wanted to share this with you because it's succinct, but I also think it it tells a side of this that, uh, that we largely haven't considered. Ryan McMacken says, It seems supporters of the Biden administration finally settled on a narrative they like for explaining away supply chain shortages. Here's the administration's talking point. Quote, The U.S. economy is rolling along so well that Americans are demanding huge amounts of goods. That over, that's overwhelming the supply chain and causing the backups rolling America's, roiling America's ports and logistic infrastructure, end quote. So because we want stuff, because we're doing so well, especially with all those stimulus checks, that's why things are backed up. Now, Ryan McMacken says, for example, uh, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg declared this month, demand is up because income is up. Because the president has successfully guided this economy out of the teeth of a terrifying recession. Kind of makes you wonder what meds he's on, right? If that's the reality that he sees. Similarly, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki told reporters, supply chain problems are occurring because people have more money. Their wages are up. We've seen an economic recovery that's underway. Now, of course, this position's been mocked by a number of conservative politicians, including Senator Ted Cruz and commentators who find it to be an absurd assumption. Ryan McMacken says, indeed, Cruz and other critics could point to a variety of factors ranging from the weight of government regulations to the problem of COVID lockdowns limiting the productivity of supply chain workers. Yet the administration's defenders are right about consumer demand and spending, even if it's for the wrong reasons. 
As Mai Hai Makovai showed earlier this month, the global volume of trade and shipping volume in 2021 have actually exceeded pre-pandemic numbers. For example, in the Port of Los Angeles, loaded imports and total imports for 2020-21 uh, fiscal year, ending June 30th of 2021, were both up when compared to the same period of the 2018-2019 fiscal year. In other words, it's not as if little is moving through these ports. In fact, more is moving through them than ever before. So that does suggest demand is indeed higher. But why is it higher? Now, he says in some ways it's true that, as Saki says, people have more money. But that, however, is where the veracity and usefulness of Biden's defenders end in explaining the problem. In fact, Ryan McMacken says much of the answer can be found in monetary inflation. Now, obviously, Joe Biden hasn't successfully guided the economy through anything. But it's accurate to say that people have more money in a nominal sense. Wages are up nominally. After all, if we look at the immense amount of new money created over the past 18 months, we should absolutely expect people to have more money sloshing around. But this also means a lot more pressure on the logistical infrastructure as people buy up more consumer goods. The idea that supply chain problems are driving inflation gets the causation backward. It's money supply inflation that's causing much of the supply chain's problems, not the other way around. And here's the explanation he puts out here. He says... After all, as of September 2021, M2 has increased from 15.2 trillion to 20.9 trillion since February of 2020. That's an increase of 35%. I believe M2 refers to the money supply. Yes, some of that has been kept within the banking system through the Fed's payment of interest on reserves. But a lot of it clearly has entered the real economy through stimulus payments, unemployment insurance, and federal deficit spending in general. Now, originally, the public was saving a lot of that stimulus and bailout money, with the personal savings rate hitting historic highs of over 25%. But this past summer, the savings rate collapsed again, and as of September, is back under 8%. The public is now flooding the economy with its foreign savings, or its former savings. Hmm... The American appetite for spending on consumer goods hasn't gone away, yet there are many reasons to suspect this spending spree is unsupported by actual economic activity and a phenomenon of, and it is a phenomenon of monetary inflation. McMacken says, for example, today's tsunami of spending raises questions when we consider there are still about 5 million fewer people working in the American economy than was the case in early 2020. So that should mean fewer people being paid wages. Without monetary inflation, an economy with millions of fewer workers suggests there ought to be less spending. Additionally, he says spending increases when the public suspects that inflation is going to increase. They buy it now because it's going to be more expensive later. If there's a perception the value of money will decline, then the demand for money will decline also. As Ludwig von Mises noted, once public opinion is convinced, the prices of all commodities and services will not cease to rise Everybody becomes eager to buy as much as possible and to restrict his cash holding to minimum size. That means more spending. This phenomenon is already clear in home prices and grocery prices. So the public may suspect rising prices are here to stay. Meanwhile, the Consumer Price Index, a very limited measure of goods price inflation, is nonetheless near a 35-year high. In other words, that means now is a good time to spend. 
Ryan McMacken says with 2020's panic-induced saving subsiding, people are now wondering if their savings produce any returns. But ordinary savers are surely now remembering that the interest returns from savings right now are next to nothing. Thanks to the central bank's ultra-low interest rate policy, we live in a yield-starved world. And that's okay for hedge funders who can participate in carry trades and other high-yield forms of investment. But regular people are stuck with interest rates that don't keep up with price inflation. So it makes more sense to spend dollars than to save them. So Joe Biden's people are correct in a certain sense that people have more money and that demand is up. That's just what you would expect in an inflationary environment. We should expect demand for everything except money to be up. But Ryan McMacken says the question is, however, how much of this windfall will continue in real inflation-adjusted terms? Now, he says it's too early to tell, although we can also see that inflation-adjusted median earnings collapsed 6.3% year-over-year during the second quarter of 2021. We can also see that real GDP growth has dramatically slowed. But at least as far as the third quarter is concerned, it's fairly clear the U.S. was and likely still is in the midst of an inflationary boom. But how long will it last? We do live in interesting times. And and most of the sticker shock that I'm seeing right now, I haven't bought any really big ticket items here lately. Anybody who's bought a truck, you, you probably know what I'm talking about. But most of my sticker shock comes when I'm standing in the aisle at the grocery store. Yet if there was a place where I was going to uh, put money, if I was going to convert that money into tangible goods, I mean, you know, the precious metals is, is one area where you would want to go. Tools, land, seeds, you know, the ability to grow and produce your own food or to produce your own things. That's all good. Food storage itself is one of those places where I would feel like that was money well spent. Why? Well, because I'm going to eat it. At some point, I'm going to be hungry, and I'm going to eat the food that's sitting there in my pantry. But also because the prices aren't going to be getting lower. I will just remind you that I do have a wonderful sponsor called LifesavingFood.com, and you can get a 20% discount by using my last name, Hyde, at checkout. You'll find a link to them in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, before we go any further, I want to welcome a new sponsor to the program, GovernYourIncome.com. There is a link in the show notes that will take you there. And I'm, I'm just going to cut right to the chase. This is not something that's for everybody. All right, there are people for whom this will make perfect sense. But I'm just going to give you the quick down and dirty overview. And that is this. The single fastest, most impactful way to increase your personal freedom is to take more control over your income amount and your income source. Now, we are talking about day trading in the foreign currency exchange market. You think about this. I know the markets are precarious right now. Well, what if the stock market crashes? Guess what? Even if a particular country's stock market crashes, there is still value being being, uh, traded back and forth in the foreign currency exchange market. 
And if you go to governyourincome.com, they will uh, it will send you right to a landing page where you can read a little bit more about this uh, this company that will train you in how to do day trading on Forex. In fact, there's a little $10 demo that you can pay for and start to to see how their software works, how their training works, and then you can experience the potential of day trading. See if it fits with you and get your questions answered. Again, this isn't for everybody. But for someone who really understands and wants to crunch the numbers and who is can see, look, the, the company's willing to put its own money up there, uh, you know, for, for you to work with. This may just be something you're looking for. I'm happy to welcome them aboard as a sponsor. I want you to know I won't do this for just every sponsor. I think these guys have something that's worth looking at, even if it's not for everybody, for the people it's right for, this could be a tremendous opportunity. So please feel free to check it out. There's a link in the show notes. All right, two two very quick articles here that I wanted to share with you. Uh, One of them I'm just going to touch on briefly. Um, The vaccine mandates and the pressure on the unvaccinated, right? It's been relentless. And even someone who's given serious thought to, uh, you know, why I will not take the shot may feel like they're at a disadvantage when someone asks you to explain, why won't you get it? Why won't you take the vaccine? So I've linked to uh, an article by Christian Elliott. It's a very highly detailed essay. You better plan on a minimum of an hour to an hour and a half if you want to read this thing word for word. This is a an essay titled 17 More Reasons I Won't Be Getting a COVID Vaccine. Now, his original essay started with 18 reasons. So you're actually getting 35 reasons for the price of 17, but... Um, Every one of these is well-researched, it's well-thought-out, and again, I don't have time to cover it here, but if you find the time to read it, I can promise you, you will not be sorry. It will give you more food for thought, and it will give you answers, should you need to provide them for someone who is sincerely asking. Someone's just trying to pick a fight, my recommendation is don't rise to the occasion, don't give them the reaction, just, you know, move along and... And, and let them let them deal with whatever they're dealing with, you know, on their own. You don't have to, just because you're invited to, you don't have to show up for a fight. You know, when people speak of the Great Reset, we're mostly left to our imaginations what that must mean. Oh, the Great Reset. Now, to the utopians among us, it's a reordering of human civilization. It's the stepping stone to a green world of modern pod living with lots of uh, social justice for all. But uh, there's an article published today on lewrockwell.com by Brandon Hurd. And Brandon Hurd says, Now is the time to look much more closely at the Great Reset, which he says is a fake utopia being sold to us by charlatans. Let me hit just a couple of the high points of what he covers here. He says, As we exit the pandemic, expect to hear much more about the Great Reset and building back better. Far from resulting in a low-carbon dream life, though, he says it's a cartoonish fantasy that will hand the global elite even more power. The Great Reset is a term that's been bandied about quite readily by most Western neoliberal politicians, so often, in fact, and without proper explanation, rather, that it strikes the prudent observer as a kind of paid advertisement. But he says, what is it exactly? The term rose to prominence at the 50th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in June of 2020. And it was initially launched by the Prince of Wales. 
before being absorbed into the philosophy of the sartorially dystopian sci-fi villain Klaus Schwab, founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. The Great Reset refers to a plan to rebuild the world's infrastructure in a sustainable way following the economic ravages of the COVID-19 pandemic and to establish a global treaty to prevent future pandemics, or as it's described more formally, to build a more robust international health architecture that will protect future generations. So Brendan Hurd says, look, if you ever hear people talking about building back better, he says they're referring to the Great Reset. Probably the most disturbing part of the Great Reset is how strongly it resembles business as usual, just with an extra heaping of globalism, heaping helping of globalism, sorry. Most of the plan's outlines include a further weakening of national boundaries and individual national autonomy in favor of a more universal governance. And as a result, it's the rapidly vanishing Western middle class which is going to shoulder this burden as their freedoms are further curtailed to meet the quota of corporate media-fueled activism. Now, there are a lot of different world leaders charmed into acquiescence by Schwab's commandingly uh, sinister Blofeld-esque wardrobe, and they've agreed to the Great Reset. But the general agreement of the Western leaders is absolutely typical of any agenda espoused by NATO, the UN, or the World Economic Forum. If an emotionally charged, politically vague, and ultimately ineffectual edict or bill is proposed by one of these entities, each resembling a shabby, globetrotting team of insurance salesmen, our effete politicians line up to show the most fervent compliance. So as a rule, it seems their solutions to specific environmental or scientific problems mysteriously become entwined with LGBTQ plus rights, workplace equity, open borders initiatives, and other unrelated social justice causes. It's as though any goals they have are somehow unilaterally from the same source or entail the same solution, regardless of causality or consequence. Therefore, a united response to a global pandemic mysteriously also equals trans-right activism. Okay, in their own words, no single government or multilateral agency can address this pandemic threat alone. Together, we must be better prepared to predict, prevent, detect, assess, and effectively respond to pandemics in a highly coordinated fashion. End quote. Now, Brendan Hurd says there are a lot of other sweeping sentiments expressed by Schwab, Schwab rather, and his acolytes, which can seem either trite or threatening. Consider, quote, the gulf between what markets value and what people value will close. And we want more attention paid to scientific experts. No one can self-isolate from climate change, so we all need to act in advance and in solidarity. There's much talk of the pursuit of fairer and equitable outcomes. Now, Brandon Hurd points out here, international treaties always tend to be about concentrating power. It's just one of those rules of life for realists is there is no escaping power dynamics in human affairs. Real problems don't often have feel-good solutions. Often they require solutions that sound mean, that don't sound good on a corporate goals bulletin. Initiatives like the Great Reset all entail the gradual loss of the autonomy of individual nations as their decision-making power is transferred to an international disembodied rulemaker. Now he says it has been without a doubt a globalist fantasy for a long time, but the key question is, 
do they realize what they are doing or not? As far as their amazing coordinated pandemic response goes, this appears to be nothing more than forced worldwide vaccinations for everybody. According to Klaus Schwab himself, as long as not everybody is vaccinated, nobody will be safe. To which the attendant neoliberal world leaders nodded in reaffirming unison, repeating in unison their mantra, global public good. So it may sound like cartoonish optimism, but the jewel in the crown of the Great Reset optimism has to be the belief that uh, with with AI and nanotechnology and other other uh, different magical advances, that somehow everything can be altered positively without specifics to create a low-carbon new world. And Brendan Hurd says, hey, it appears at best to be all smoke and mirrors a childish corporate fantasy manufactured by isolated bean counters. At worst, he says, it's an intentional power grab by unaccountable international agencies and hidden oligarchs. Either way, he says, it is a fake utopia at the price of privacy and autonomy sold to us by used car salesmen who think they are princes. Hey, that's not very respectful. I kind of like it. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Show some love to my sponsors. Uh, Listen, subscribe yourself, and I will send you my show notes each day in your email inbox. This is The Brian Hyde Show.